Welcome to the Rennie Podcast, a podcast about everything real estate for the real estate interested. My name is Peter Edmonds, and I'm a member of the team here at Rennie. We're a real estate company of 300 people advising buyers and sellers from first-time condo purchasers to large-scale developers so they can make smart and informed real estate decisions. We made this podcast as a concise and consumable way to share our passion for homes, housing, community, and cities. We hope that this will spark the same curiosity in you that we have for everything real estate. All of the documents and links mentioned in this podcast are available on our website at rennie.com. On this episode of the Rennie Podcast, we'll be answering the question, how does supply and demand affect the home buying experience? To answer this question, we'll start by first discussing the fundamental laws of supply and demand, and then move into a few key insights to help explain this important fundamental. And joining us to lead this conversation, from, at least from the intelligence side, that's sort of a double entendre there, is Ryan Berlin from the Rennie Intelligence team. Ryan, how are you? Good, Peter. How are you? Great. Tell us a little bit about what you do here at Rennie. Well, my job is exciting to me. Um, I spend most of my days trying to help people and organizations better understand the dynamics of our housing market and our economy. Um, through objective and evidence-based research, and it's a lot of fun. So supply and demand, Ryan, pretty simple, right? Pretty simple. I think it's intuitive. In a nutshell, the laws of supply and demand govern the markets for everything, right, Peter? From hummus to haircuts, which you don't often need, and neither do I. (laughs) No. Um, We're both uh, very short-haired men. We are (laughs) short-haired. I like it. I like it. Um... And, you know, quite simply, the two laws are, one, the law of demand, which basically says that the more demand that there is for something, a product, a service, relative to the amount of supply of it, the higher the price will be, or the more it will increase, and vice versa. So if there's less demand relative to supply, the price will be lower, will tend to come down. The law of supply is kind of the opposite, which says that the more that is produced of something, the more that is available of something... Um, the lower the price will be, all else being equal, and vice versa. So if something's relatively scarce, that price will be relatively higher than it otherwise would be for a given amount of demand. Those are the two concepts which I think everybody kind of acknowledges at a very you know, fundamental level uh, within any market. And those laws of supply and demand compete against each other to determine the price of the thing in that market. So Ryan, you've broken this down into three key insights. Maybe you could share sh- share this with us off the front, and then we'll go through them individually. Sure. So the the three insights that relate to supply and demand, um, you know, specifically within a housing context, are as follows. The first is that the supply of and the demand for housing always determines the price of housing. The second insight is that new housing supply and existing housing supply interact with our market in unique ways, and I will elaborate on that. And the third insight is that housing demand tends to be more variable than housing supply in the short run. Got it. Got it. So that's a pretty good coverage uh, of a number of different angles of this. So so let's let's start with that first insight, of course, is the supply of and the demand for housing always determines the price of housing. That's right. So, you know, again, a a very simple concept that that I think we can all agree on is that for a home to sell... um, there has to be a buyer that is willing to pay the price that 
a seller is comfortable with. Um, and this gets down to one of the fundamental features of our housing market, and that is as individual sellers and buyers, and I'll group developers in there as well. Anybody who is um, transacting in the real estate market, they are price takers as opposed to price makers. And what I mean by that is, look at your experience. You know, you would love to sell your condo for $625,000. Sure, you'd take that in an instant, but maybe the market can only bear $500,000. And that $500,000 is not determined by the potential purchaser of your condo. They don't decide what they're going to pay you. They decide what they can afford, and they might be able to afford your home based on these broad macroeconomic trends that we see in both supply and demand that aren't readily apparent when you're walking around an open house looking at a new home or if you're a seller who's just put their home on the market. But those factors ultimately drive a buyer and seller to um, agree on a price for a home. Right. So let's let's get back to my fictitious home for that I'm I want to list for six six hundred and twenty five grand. You're you're saying that uh, that someone who uh, wants to buy it there's a whole bunch of factors on their side that will set that price, but I'm not actually setting the price as the vendor or as the developer. Um, you're saying it's the, that it's the buyer that is selling setting the price. Is that correct? The buyer is setting the price that they can afford, but there are all kinds of potential buyers out there that can afford different price points. So um, it's the collection of that those buyers, that aggregate demand, that interacts with the supply of homes, which includes yours, to determine a fair market value. So, so is that why it doesn't feel like I'm setting the price? Like I'm just sort of, is it because that group of buyers is out there and it's not just me, the only buyer in the market, I'm the sole source of demand? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think, I think as a, as a seller, you feel like you're picking your price because you choose a a price at which to list your home. But ultimately the market is going to tell you whether that, that list price was too high Mm -hmm. um, or if it, if it was too low, so to speak, and, and you'll see that manifest itself, uh, the latter scenario where the price is too low in the form of um, multiple offers. We have a lot of different people that are willing to pay more because essentially what they're doing is they're looking at what else is out there and saying like, hey, you know, this is a good deal. I'm willing to pay a little bit over the, the asking price here and, and, and this will work for me. You'll see um, subject free offers. You'll see uh, offers over asking. Um, and those are examples of where Sure, the seller has picked their list price, but the ultimate price is determined by broader demand factors. Right, right. So that's, I guess, why it feels like, uh, you know, we don't have as much control as we wish we would, either in price setting as the, as the seller or in the purchase price as the buyer. The price that you list your home at is just the bait. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, what do you mean by that, Ryan? <laughs> you... When you set your list price, you're signaling to the market um, the number and the types of buyers that you're hoping to attract to your home. I mean, and ultimately, if you set it far too low um, and you're willing to wait for offers to come in, that, that price will be bid up to what it should have been. And if it's too high, you might be attracting the right type of buyer in your mind, but not enough of them. Mm-hmm. Or deals, uh, people uh, just striking on the bait, if you exactly. will. Exactly. Gotcha. And so, when in your practice, when you advise, uh, you, you know, our our realtors, or advisors, uh, and and our and our staff about pricing and and that kind of those kind of trends, what are you looking at 
you know, in terms of um, informing them how the supply of and demand for housing always determines prices. Well, I think the big thing is uh, understanding if you're a buyer or seller, do you need to be a buyer now or do you need to be a seller now? Because if that's the case, then really what you need to do is just operate within the existing supply and demand parameters that have been set that you cannot control. If you have the flexibility to you know, you're in the market as a buyer, but you don't need to buy now. And you're, so you're, you're looking ahead and you're thinking, well, you know, anytime between now and the next year, you know, we're, we're a couple and we've got a child on the way and we want a bit of a bigger home. Well, then this is where you want to start to examine um, changes that might occur to the, ta- the, 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 the tax landscape or the regulatory landscape or what's happening with interest rates, uh, migration, how much additional competition might there be for homes generally because you don't know how much competition there'll be for a particular home. Um, what does that look like down the line and is now a better time to buy than later? And if you're a seller, it's the same thing. If you don't need to sell, well, you really need to be aware of local neighborhood supply first and foremost. Um, but secondly, just sort of examining that broader macroeconomic environment, are the jobs and wages there to provide confidence to buyers at the, at the time you want to list so that you are getting in your mind, a fair shake at things. Um, and I think those are the things that you need to consider as an individual buyer or seller. So, uh, Ryan, insight number two, as you stated, is that uh, new housing supply and existing housing supply interact with the market in unique ways. And, and, and what you mean by new housing supply is you mean brand new homes added into the market. Is that right? Correct. So this is a bit of a, an interesting um, differentiation or topic. Um, I do have some nitpicky economist friends uh, who might take issue with how these two types of supply are characterized, and I'm not going to name names. So there's the, the, the true new supply, which, as you said, is brand new homes that are built that add to the existing stock of housing that we have. That expands our, the capacity of our housing market to accommodate new people as we grow our job space and our um, education institutions grow and so on. So for, for the sake of clarity of insight, you're talking about, uh, you know, a former pet store uh, site being uh, replaced with a condo tower that has 140 homes in it. Exactly. And all the way to, um, you know, a detached home that adds a laneway house in the back. Right. That's new supply where someone previously was not living in a place and that place now has the capacity to accommodate someone or many people. And that's new housing supply and existing housing supply. uh, This is where economists might differ on the interpretation here, but existing housing supply is really those homes that become available on the market. There's already people living in them um, and they might become available for sale for someone else to move into for a whole bunch of reasons. Maybe the, 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 the current owners are downsizing the kids have moved out. Maybe they need more space because they're a growing family. Maybe they, they've encountered some financial difficulty and need to sell their home. So the, the, that existing home becomes available. These homes do not add to the capacity of our housing stock to um, add people. And therefore it doesn't per se, it doesn't per se facilitate growth in our, in our economy. Um, well, hang on. But what if uh, a downsizer couple uh, in East Vancouver, uh, there's two of them living in the home, 
move out of their four bedroom home where they raised the family and downsize to new product that has one bedroom, let's say maybe two, probably two. So they've gone from four bedrooms to two, but they weren't activating those four bedrooms. Does that count as adding? Tell me what, what that's, what's that all about? You're absolutely right that there is, um, capacity within our existing dwelling stock to be, to have it used more efficiently Mm -hmm. in the sense that there might be more bedrooms than people in, in, well, we know this in many, many homes throughout the region, but by and large, if we just sort of take a simpler, you know, you know, broader perspective on it, it is, it is the new housing that adds to the capacity, uh, of the existing stock to, to, to accommodate new people, new jobs and so on. But the, the important distinction is that, New housing supply, true new housing supply is not very responsive to um, macroeconomic trends that are happening at a given point in time. Because typically, um, the decision to um, to build a 30-story um, tower or even a detached home, um, that begins with two to three years required for planning, for construction, and then ultimate occupancy. Um, Whereas on the uh, existing supply side, um, it is a little bit more responsive to current market conditions, if you will. Because it can fulfill the demand right away. It can meet the demand right away. It can. I mean, it's a matter of connecting with a realtor, mm. creating... You're activating the existing supply. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And, and you said contact a realtor. And per Insight One, you know, price it to market. And 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 you're you're in the supply base now, Correct. and you can you, you, there's some demand that will meet you if you're priced properly Correct. with the right product. And and both types of supply are important, mm-hmm. right? We need both types to facilitate movement within our stock. As you know, as you mentioned, there might be somebody with extra bedrooms, and they hey, they don't need the space, they don't want the space, they don't want two levels, they'd like 800 square feet with a view, and so they free up existing space for a family to move into yeah so that that, that's that notion of efficiency right that's the efficient use of the stock and that's kind of on the margins of error though right like it's not it's it is that that efficiency i think that's the housing stock a a major factor in the market that's an ever-present dynamic okay Um, (laughs) that's an economist way of saying maybe (laughs) maybe not So Ryan, I know you mentioned sort of uh, the development cycle and 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 fits and starts a little bit in terms of um, the responsiveness of new housing supply, and it and and it, that's a great lead into to, to our third insight, which is that housing demand is more variable than housing supply in the short run. Well, what's really interesting is that any true new housing supply that we see today, new homes that are completed and available for move in today, is that's the product of decisions that were made three, four, five, and six years ago um, to set in motion a series of events that would ultimately lead to the purchase of land, uh, the approval to build a certain type of home on that land, uh, to ultimately organize the construction of that home, to finance it, um, and eventually have it to the point where it is occupiable. And so it may, that home may have been conceived of, or that building that has 150 homes might have been conceived of in very, very different macroeconomic conditions than the one in which it ultimately is completed. Or if you bring it back a few years, the one into which it is, it is pre-sold into. Mm-hmm. So it is for home builders, there's a little bit of a leap of faith in the sense that there has to be a, a commitment early on in the process, years before 
you'll see the product realized to bring this new home to the market, trusting that, you know, that, that the conditions will support ultimately the saleability of that home or that there'll be demand for that home because the jobs will be here. The people will be here. The incomes will be sufficient to, um, purchase a home that, you know, has a certain cost. Well, you talked about how complex the, the demand side factors are. Right. And, and you said there's a whole bunch of sort of factors that it's not like someone shows up at your door and is ready to buy. There's so all this affordability factors and time of life and all these kinds of things that influence demand, but it's not just the home builder who has to take that leap of faith or participates in that decision-making, right? There's a whole bunch of, of people and governing bodies that participate in, in, in the production of uh, new housing supply. Is that right? That's, uh, yeah, that's a great point. There are those who finance the project, uh, who invest in the project. There are those who actually build it. There are those who purchase the land, those who design it. There are local governments that approve it and guide it through um, a process so that it is the right type of housing for the right type of neighborhood. And the right site and everything, right? And all of that. Yeah. So all of that takes time. Mm -hmm. And I would say more so even in this region, Metro Vancouver, where we have fairly significant and, you know, well-acknowledged geographic and topographic constraints with agricultural land reserve areas, the the U.S. border, uh, coastline, uh, mountains. And we've actually built out a lot of our region already. So in order to add new housing, often we're repurposing uh, existing housing or an existing land use. um, And that takes a lot of time, whereas you, if you, you know, compare it to a city like Calgary, where they have an abundance of land, and they, whereas we grow upward, Calgary can grow outward. Mm. They can they can add new supply, new housing supply, relatively easy in comparison to this region. And so, there are a lot of different narratives. When we talk about detached homes, yeah. we have um, more detached homes in this region today, not just in the city of Vancouver, but every municipality in this region than we will ever have in the future. But that was also the case five years ago. And why and it was and, also and the just, case 10 years ago. Yeah. And, oh, I see. So it, it's diminishing. The supply of single family not, homes is diminishing. Is that right? Correct. Because we're not creating, there's continued pressure to add new supply because our population is growing through migration, but also through um, people having babies, having kids, raising families. Um, and so we need to figure out how to add more homes on the same amount of land. And so what we're seeing in literally over the last 10 years in every municipality in this region, except for Maple Ridge, I don't know what's happening in Maple Ridge, a decline in the number of detached homes. This often gets framed as a city of Vancouver problem or challenge, but really it's one that is besetting every municipality in the region. So Ryan, uh, as a way of concluding all of our podcast episodes, we always uh, recap the insights. So, on supply and demand, insight number one, the supply of and the demand for housing always determines the price of housing. You got it. Yeah. And then uh, insight number two, new housing supply and existing housing supply interact with the market in very unique ways. And then the third one, of course, is housing demand is more variable than housing supply in the short run. And normally we conclude with a little bit of, uh, uh, of fun chatter, but I want to add a little bit of a bonus onto the end of this episode because the notion of time came up the best 
advice I ever received uh, in participating in, in, in the real estate market. And then the best advice that I've ever given is exactly the same. And, and one of my um, employers uh, said this to me. He said, Peter, time your life and not the market. And I think that's always taught me to view real estate as home and not necessarily as a commodity in particular. But, you know, we've talked about time as one of the variables within supply and demand that can sort of shift the power of that fundamental on your real estate adventure. So maybe you talk a little bit about that. Time is an element here for sure, Peter. But I think what we're talking about really is timing. And the that is the one tool that a buyer or a seller may have to help them navigate these really broad forces of supply and demand. So back to your, um, your, your statement about, uh, timing your life and not the market. Um, you know, I, that's a really succinct way of putting it and I love it. I've had people ask me, is this the right time to buy or is this the right time to sell? And I never answer in the absolute. Uh, it always goes back to the question asker. Um, what are your needs and what are your means? Um, you only know in hindsight whether you made the best purchase or you mm-hmm. had the best sale price once mm-hmm. the market has fully cycled through. And it's rarely both. <laughs> it's rarely both. Um, but I think there are some decisions you can make if you're a buyer or a seller and you don't have to buy now and you don't have to sell now, which isn't, it isn't everyone. Some people do need to make some you know quick decisions. Um, but if you are able to um, be flexible about when you're listing your home or when you can actually pull the trigger on a purchase, then it's worthwhile to evaluate all of the things that are driving demand at a given point in time, whether that's big picture at the national, provincial, regional level or at the local neighborhood level. And what are some of the supply side uh, issues that are influencing the market and does it make sense maybe to poke around now if you're a buyer but maybe really initiate your search uh in earnest in six months time or if you're a seller you know maybe it's february the weather's terrible um and there are a bunch of listings in your neighborhood that have been uh, available for you know three to four months well you know if you don't need to sell now maybe you, you you wait until some of those listings have cleared out the weather improves people are out walking around and they'll see your home and they'll want to come in and take a look um there are situations too where you know oftentimes you'll have somebody who is both a buyer and a seller at the same time, and those are instances where you know you have to look strategically at the market and you look at the home that you're buying, the neighborhood in which you're buying, the product type that you're buying, you know whether the home type you're buying, you know whether it's a detached house, a townhome, a row house, a condo, and what is the market for that home? Because it might be that. Um, the market for the home that you're looking to purchase is really a buyer's market, meaning that as a purchaser, you kind of hold, there's a little bit more momentum on your side that you might be able to um, get a relatively favorable price. And maybe at the same time, the home that you're currently selling uh, exists within seller's market conditions. So, so just to just to take this out of the economist language and sort of break <laughs> it down to, to, to a real world experience. So you've got, you know, uh, two-year-old you're living in a two-bed condo uh another baby on the way let's say um and uh you need to sell your two-bed condo and get yourself into a three-bed townhome or a detached single family um and the two-bed market might be much softer than the 
the townhome or or detached single family market, uh, w- which which is seeing a lot of activity. So it may take you a long time to sell and you have to quickly buy something else. So this notion of timing, uh, you know, then it is a massive influence on your real estate experience and certainly the vibes that come with, uh, with, with engaging in that. Absolutely. That's a great example. I mean, someone in that situation would have to sort of very seriously consider their strategy and does it make sense to go and purchase a home in a seller's market that, that three bedroom townhome when you're not sure what the demand might be for your existing two bedroom condo or do you turn it around and say you know the safest bet here is for me to um, sell my two bedroom condo and then evaluate what i can actually afford in the marketplace this is something that you talk to realtors about every day uh, here at Rennie in terms of in helping inform them with some of these macroeconomic trends and setting prices and uh, confirming some of the assumptions of their strategies of their clients and so on Yeah, and maybe that's a corollary to all of this, which is that supply and demand, the specific supply and demand factors, which, you know, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but even down at the neighborhood level might be very different from one neighborhood to the other. And that's where an advisor can really help you understand what those local dynamics are and then help you build your strategy for either for buying or selling. And also for those who are sort of nerding out, we've sort of under promoted Rennie.com as a, as a buying and selling tool, but there's a, there's a lot of information there. If you really want to sort of get into finding out what activity in different neighborhoods is in terms of uh, buying and selling activity, sales history, um, all those kinds of things, right? Absolutely. And in addition, uh, if you click on the intelligence uh, link and go to the intelligence page, we have all kinds of reports that um, detail specific housing market data and trends, but also broader um, economic and demographic and financial market and policy driven trends that we're seeing as well that, that impact our housing market. Well, Ryan, this is a fascinating conversation. It's just scratching the surface, but there's a lot of nuance to this. And so this conversation could go on for, for, for hours and hours with dozens more insights on this. But I really want to thank you for, for helping make it simple today. Thanks, Peter. It's been fun. Yeah. The Rennie Podcast is a Rennie production. It's recorded on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. I'm Peter Edmonds. Thanks for listening. <laughs>